Have you ever had the experience where two consecutive days, back-to-back -back days, consecutive 24-hour periods are radically different from one another? How the first day can be average and ordinary, mundane, typical, may even be a little bit boring. But the next day, the very next day, is completely opposite, 180 degrees opposite. And I think we've all had those sorts of experiences. And I'm not talking about the difference between a Sunday and a Monday. I'm talking about these life-changing differences. And I've had two of those days. The first is August 30th, 2011, and the second is August 31st, 2011. Now, the 30th was a Tuesday, end of summer, and we all know here in Northern California, it was bright and beautiful, no chance of rain. And it was a typical day. I can tell you what I was doing as a vocation, what my activities were, but there's no emotion, no visceral experience when I think about that particular day. But the next day, the very next day, the 31st, was like no day I had ever had before. It was 180 degrees different. And not just that, I could give you the entire chronology, moment by moment by moment. And when I think about that day, there is a tremendous amount of emotion. Because August 31st, 2011 was the day that I was going to kill myself. It was the day that the monster known as clinical depression, after trying for close to 40 years, passionately, had finally convinced me of his dark and awful and insidious lies. On that day, I came to believe, not just in my mind, but with every part of my being, that I was weak and stupid, that I was useless, worthless, that I was an embarrassment, that I was a burden, that I was grotesque. But most damning, on that day was the monster's ability to convince me of the awful lie that everybody in my then life, my former bride, Deanna, my family, my friends, the monster convinced me that everybody, their lives would improve, not just a little bit, but exponentially in the wake of my death and the absence of my pitiful and grotesque existence. I believed that to be true. While illogical, I believed it to be 100% true. And I believe what I was about to do was a selfless act, not a selfish act, that I was going to rid the world of the burden that I was and my wife, that everybody would be better. So on that morning, again, a beautiful, bright morning, and I remember walking outside, and the, the sky was like a, an artist's rendition of a perfect blue. And I went back inside, and I sat at the computer, and I typed out my suicide note, and then without telling anybody where I was headed, I took that note and got in my red Dodge Dakota pickup truck and made the short drive from our home in Penryn to the Forest Hill Bridge. Now, the Forest Hill Bridge is 730 feet tall. It is 500 feet further off the ground than the bridge that Tracy references. The fourth tallest bridge in the world. There have been 80 souls that have lost their life off that bridge. And I made the drive, and I parked my vehicle in a spot far enough away that it wouldn't cause any distraction, but close enough where in time it would, in fact, be discovered. And I brought the truck to a rest, and I turned off the ignition, and I closed my eyes, and I put my hands on the 10 and 2 position on the steering wheel. And I pushed myself as hard and as deep as I could into the driver's seat and then relaxed a little bit. And I took a deep breath. And then I opened my eyes, and I reached over, and I grabbed the suicide note. To Deanna, my family, and friends, I have decided that the time has come for me to go. I am choosing to end my life so I can be free of the pain in my heart and soul, 
the betrayal of my mind and the depth of self-hatred that I feel at every ounce of my being. I have become the burden I wish I never would and a drag on those around me. I am a damaged shell of a boy, not yet close to being what a man should be. Everyone will be much better off without me. I am so very sorry. I took the note and I placed that right in the center of the dash. And I took the keys out of the ignition and I placed those in the center of the note and exited the vehicle and then turned slightly to my right to make sure that the door was unlocked. Crossed over the road and walked down the short way to the close end of the bridge deck. Now, the Forest Hill Bridge is a half a mile long. And if you've seen a picture of the bridge or actually been in there, the view from either side is spectacular. It is like another artist's rendition. But I resisted the temptation to take in the view. And I resisted the temptation to catch eyes, to connect with any of the drivers that pass by. And on this day, my senses were more alive and alert than I'd ever experienced. I felt the sun on my skin in a way I'd never have felt. I felt the, the breeze go over the hairs on my arm. I felt the bounce in the bridge deck with each passing vehicle. And I was focused on a light post that sits right in the midpoint of the bridge deck. And step by deliberate step, I made my way a thousand feet to the midpoint. And at the time, the suicide barrier was right about four feet. It has since been risen to six feet. But at that time, it hit me about chest high. And again, resisting the temptation to look out in front, I bent over and became fixated on a small circular spot of water in the North Fork of the American River that runs 730 feet below the spot that I was standing. And my mind was in such an altered state that it played a trick on me that while, of course, the river was flowing, in the circle of my aim, the water was placid and smooth, not moving at all. And I became fixated on this bullseye to the extent where everything else disappeared. Time and space and, and relativity, everything had narrowed down to this spot of water. And I mention that because I don't know how long I stayed there in this pose of crucifixion bent over and standing and staring at this place of water, this spot. But thankfully, it was long enough for a driver to act upon a feeling that we've all had. When we've looked upon a situation and thought, something's not right with this picture. And that soul picked up the phone and called 911, and a first responder approached me from the left-hand side and initially established contact, which is logistical and then created connection, which is life-saving because connection creates hope, and hope indeed saves lives. I was taken off that bridge into an emergency room and then to a psychiatric health facility right in Placer County. They call it the Puff, Puff for Psychiatric Health Facility. And when people found out I was there and why, they were shocked. I looked very much then like I look now, and people could not put their head around where I was and why. It made no sense. They had no clue. And instead of seeing me as suicidal and clinically depressed, they saw me as the happy, contented co-director of a nationally recognized animal sanctuary called A Chance for Bliss. And the sanctuary was an amazing place, home to as many as 100 animals at any one time. 25 horses, 23 dogs, nine pot-bellied pigs, goats and sheep and ducks and geese and bunnies and birds. We had fish, we had turtles. Noah had nothing on us. <laughs> and we were very specific. My former bride is a brilliant, compassionate soul who really was the leader in this. I, I was good at picking up poop. 
And we looked for animals that were very sick, very old, or the great majority who were at the end of life. We were like a large hospice. And such, we did no adoptions. Animals came to the sanctuary, became a resident, and stayed, as we like to say, until they made their transition. And we became known throughout the country as a forever home for companion animals deemed to be unadoptable. And on June 2nd, 2010, we were the cover story in the life section of USA Today. I didn't fit the image of somebody who was mentally ill. I didn't fit the image of somebody who had been plagued by both clinical depression and suicidal ideations for more than four decades. But the truth is, sometimes what hurts the most can't be seen. Sometimes great despair and soul-crushing, soul-emptying, soul-eliminating agony lies just behind a forced smile, a distracting joke, or in this case, a seemingly perfect and ideal life. And because of that, people had no idea, even those closest to me, even my former bride had no idea the degree of hopelessness. I was on that spot just 14 months after the mountaintop experience of USA Today, but there I was on a dark spot on the tall, tall bridge, the hand of the monster squarely in the center of my back as he was doing everything in his power to toss me up and over with no more thought than we will give to that Starbucks coffee as we toss it into the garbage. But I was saved. Saved, and on a day that I thought would be my last day alive, it was instead the very first day of a brand new life. And the first steps in what has now been an eight-year journey away from mental hellness and into the experience of our right, not a privilege, our right, mental wellness, mental health. And, and today, to have this incredibly sacred and honor opportunity and privilege to be with you, I want to tell you a little bit about this eight-year journey, a travel, a trek, an expedition that continues to this day. And I want to first tell you, what is it like to live with this condition? Because I still have my days. There are still days that I wake up, and as soon as I open my eyes, the monster has smacked me in the mouth with everything that he can. And I want to share with you, what have I learned in this PhD course over these last eight years, not just about mental illness, but more importantly, what have I learned about mental health? And then last, what can we do? What can we do when we leave this place? Not just with information, but how can we apply it the moment we leave here to make a difference? So first question, and I'm asked this all the time, what does it feel like? And the easiest way to describe that, to give you an analogy, is to tell you about one of the dogs that was at the sanctuary. Winston was a Boston Terrier. If you're unfortunate enough to not know what a Boston Terrier is, please close your eyes in a meditative experience and imagine a more slender version of a bulldog that's dressed in a tuxedo. <laughs> now, as Tracy had referenced, the life force in any way that you want to describe it only needed two ingredients to create a Boston Terrier. All life needed was enthusiasm and gas. <laughs> wow, that's true, truly impressive what a 20-pound being can do. Now, if a Boston Terrier came in here, first he'd say hi to the therapy dogs and then go around to each and every one of you with no respect for that three-foot circle of personal space, that he would get right up in your face like he had not seen you in forever and you were his BFF and his ears would be up and his head would be up and it'd just be this embodiment of J-O-Y. Winnie, Winston had none of that. I remember the day that Winston came to the sanctuary and the Beloved rescuer put him in my arms and his head hung over and his tail was here and he was like a limp rat. 
like a wet noodle. When we put Winnie down on the ground, his head hung so low with his ears uncharacteristically down, his chin dragged on the carpet. All of this because Winston had been used as bait in a dogfighting ring. And you can imagine this 20-pound innocent soul being attacked over and over, beaten, bullied, bruised, torn apart, eviscerated, raped, to the point where he retreated, like those of us who live with this condition, retreated into that precarious place of hopelessness. And I, for one, don't believe people don't die from mental illness. They die from hopelessness. And when he was in that place, And it's a terrible, awful analogy. And it creates a terrible image, and I use it very intently for a very specific reason, to give you an idea of what it feels like. To wake up, to live through a particular day, and to go to sleep and hope that somehow, some way, just like Winston, these attacks will stop. Sometimes waking up and wishing you had died in the night. And it was in that place of hopelessness when I went into the psychiatric hospital. And, but there, in, in a place I would have never expected, my life turned around. The second day I was there, I sat down with a psychiatrist. Lab coat, stethoscope, a shrink. I had no expectation that in reality, while we were in a secular environment, he was, maybe not by ordination, but he was a holy man, a, A man that had an incredible presence, and I hope you've had this at least once, where you've been in the presence of somebody that creates such a profound sense of safety, that his listening is very much like the great Dr. Naomi Remen says, that our listening creates a sanctuary for the homeless parts in another. I hope that you've had that, because when I sat with him, he began to dialogue with me, not from a clinical perspective, but as one human to another, one man to another asked about me and asked about the sanctuary in my life. And then he shifted just a little bit. And he said, David, do you have any history? Is there any history of mental illness in your family? I hadn't thought about that. And my mind, I remember, well, yeah, my, my grandfather, who I never met, he ended his life by suicide. And I said, I do remember my father then in turn suffered terribly from clinical depression. It, this was in the late 60s and 70s in which he, he was one of the early patients with ECT. And I remember it was just a horrific experience. And, and he died at just 41. And the doctor explained to me, now, David, this is a medical condition that you live with. Now, there were, those are two words I had never heard before. So my mind was trying to catch up with that, what he's telling me, this knowledge that he's dropping on me. He says, now realize you can inherit a genetic predisposition to a medical malady, just like diabetes or heart disease or cancer, but just the presence of that, a genetic likelihood, it doesn't mean that the soul is going to be affected, to be sentenced to experience a particular condition. He said, David, often with mental illness, there's a match. Something lights this dry kindling of genetics. He said, David, a lot of times that's trauma. Have you... Have you, David, had an experience of trauma in your life? My mind, again, went blank for a moment. And he said, well, how old were you when your father died? And I said, I was just seven. And he shifted into this place of compassion. He said, now, David, realize that's incredibly traumatic for a child to lose their parent at such a young age. And then he said, has there been anything else? And there had been. There had been something I had never spoke of. 
because I was told not to. But again, this man had created this safe place, this sacred space for me to step forward, and, and I felt it was time to share. And I said, Doctor, when I was 11, I was raped by a Boy Scout leader. And then this man had a tear run down the side of his face. And he reached forward and he took my hands and he said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. Those sometimes can be the most effective and powerful thing we can say when someone's struggling with a condition. He said, I am so sorry. And he said, David, you didn't choose to be mentally ill. That wasn't your choice. And then he said four words which changed my life. He said, it's not your fault. Now, he may as well have been speaking Portuguese because my mind could not accept that because, yes, indeed, it was my fault. The monster had convinced me I was an anomaly. I was broken. I was weird. I was ugly. I was all these things. Yes, doctor, it was my fault. He just picked up because he was so intuitive, he was so tuned in, he was listening so profoundly, he picked up on these nonverbal clues and held my hand just a little bit tighter, shifted to yet another level of compassion and said, David, it's not your fault. Now, each of us here has had the experience where we've had a vivid nightmare. And yet, when we wake up, our first feeling is gratitude, like, thank God that was not real. And in that moment, I had that same taste, that I could stand up just a little bit straighter as a 48-year-old man and not feel that there was something wrong with me. And over the next 15 days, I became truly educated about what was this thing that I was dealing with. And he said, David, well, here's the bad news. So the monster's just not satisfied with owning your mind. He wants to control your physicality. He wants to drain your spirit. He wants to eat you. He wants to kill you. And I said, that is bad news, but it also helped me to understand a little bit why was it difficult some days for me to lift my head off the pillow? Why was thinking like working through sludge? Why was living like breathing through tar? Why was it so difficult? Why had I lost my faith? Why had I lost the belief that I was worthy? That helped. And he said, David, sometimes, if not always, the identification and the clarity about a problem solves the problem. It points the way to a solution. And he said, David, you're not just going to wake up one day and be well. But, and, if you commit to put your self-care on a pedestal, you can, in fact, be more well than you can imagine. And in response to that, over these last eight years, I have perfected, thanks to the influence and the mentoring and the coaching of other people, a self-care plan that is indeed high upon a pedestal. For my body, it's careful attention to sleep hygiene. It's careful attention to diet because, believe it or not, there's more neurocommunication that lives here in our stomach than does in our head. I am what I eat, which doesn't mean that I don't go visit the colonel every once in a while. <laughs> but I don't go every day. I exercise four to five days a week. I get outside each and every day. I see my therapist every Tuesday. I just saw my incredible psychiatrist two days ago. He's Dr. Francis Capobianco, Jr. He's a Jungian, so we talk about dreams and archetypes, what it's like to be a man in this day. We talk about feelings. We cry together. I take my medication just like I did today. 
Two pills, one the size of a Tic Tac, the other the size of an Altoid. And very much the, what Pastor Phil did, I give a prayer. Give a prayer with a positive expectation that these two little things are going to go in addition to everything else that I do to help me live well. But I also have a very clear expectation is that at best, my meds are going to quiet my symptoms. There is no curative aspect in an antibiotic. It's like an Advil. We break our leg and get relief from pain, but we need to do physical therapy. These medications quiet my mind for me to do these restorative, healthy things. I have my own spiritual practice with the God of my understanding, and then this, this is my vocation. The sanctuary no longer exists, but I'm able to use stories from the sanctuary to go out and do fulfill what I believe is my mission all around the country to hope and to realize my job is to connect with one soul in every audience, to remind them that your diagnosis is not your identity, nor is it a death sentence. And with work and partnership and love and understanding, compassion for self and others, you too, brother or sister, can arrive at your birthright of mental health. But of everything that I do, it is this thing called connection that keeps me well. It's the fuel, it's the vehicle which allows me on every single day to keep moving forward. I believe and in fact, if I may suggest that the three most important words in mental health are connection, connection, connection. Put far more beautifully by my dear and incredible friend, Dr. John W. Travis says, the currency of wellness is connection. It's the medium of exchange, it's the check that we write, it's the method of acquisition. We cannot be well without being connected. The monster wants to sequester us away much like a jealous lover and nothing good happens in isolation. We need solitude, that's a choice. Isolation is not. We need to be connected, but at this point I wanna make an important distinction because in the vernacular of today, the, the message of today, almost every day we hear we're chronically connected. We're overly connected. We, we have become addicted to being connected. And I'm like, no. No, no, no. That's not true. We are in contact with a great number of people. Contact is not connection. If you look up the definition of connection in the dictionary, the second word in that definition is relationship. My blessed mother, Suzanne, used to say, honey, it's all about relationships. And we know that to be true, not just with our beloved. We can have momentary, singular relationships. That relationship with the first responder created connection. We can have relationships with the people that we see on a regular basis that we may not go out to dinner with them, but we're still in relationships. Relationships allow us to normalize difficult conversation. Relationships help us realize we are not journeying through this thing called life, nor were we created to. We're hardwired for connection. It's all about connection. Connection was the hallmark of the sanctuary. We saw the incredible transformation of the animals that came to the sanctuary. At a minimum, they were depressed. Because of the population that we served, it was oftentimes a, an elderly dog or a 35-year-old horse that had been cared for and their beloved guardian passed and nobody wanted this old animal. There were other animals that came like Winston who had been abused and, and tormented and, and ripped apart. So they came, not by their choice, but they came to be with us. 
And thanks to the brilliant work that Deanna did and, and me picking up a lot of poop, <laughs> these animals transform in extraordinary ways, including, including my beloved Winston. Not long after he came to the sanctuary, we, we were blessed to be in relationship with a great many veterinarians. And we took Winnie in, and, and Winnie's eyes had been damaged because of all the abuse and the torment and the fighting. And the doctor said, you know what? I think I can restore his sight. It's not guaranteed, but I think we can restore his sight. And we thought, okay, whatever we can do for this beautiful being, let's do it. So we go through the surgery, and then for the first two weeks after the surgery, we have to keep Winnie away from the other dogs. Now, I need to mention that the 23 dogs, brace yourself, lived in the house. We, we created the term doghouse, like that started with us. Now, so that you stay with me, I'm a neatnik. The house was incredibly clean. People would walk in, they couldn't understand it. In fact, there would be no barking. It was an amazing place. Okay, let's go back here. So we have to keep Winnie away from the other dogs for the first two weeks. And so we had this beautiful office in the front and these floor-to-ceiling windows. And so between the two desks, we put Winnie in his bed. And remember, he was still processing his trauma and his loss. And so I had yet seen him with his head up and his ears still hung down. Every time I looked at him, it broke my heart. So I'd go in and check on him and he'd just be there in his bed, healing. Third day, doing my chores, and I said, well, I'll just go in and check on Winnie. Peer around between the two desks, and his head is up. Ears are up. And he's staring out the window like that gray, terrible fog. The hue, the opaque look through depression and grief and loss had been lifted. And you can imagine this soul's looking at life and the world for the very first time. And he didn't even hear that I was there. He's so fixated. And then he sees me and he's like, he wants to show me, Dad, look, there's a turkey outside. <laughs> didn't know. And he got better and he got better. And he became kind of a brat, which is a beautiful thing. Got his personality back. <laughs> in fact, his right front leg was fused at a 90 degree angle and the other dogs would walk by and he'd smack them on the butt. <laughs> just such a brat. By the end of the two weeks, he is literally scratching at the door. Let me out. Let me get back into life. That's what it's like to get some relief. You don't wake up getting punched in the mouth. You wake up getting hugged by life. The gray goes away, and you can see, as it is today, this spectacular thing called life. Now, you may say, okay, man, Baldy, those are great stories. But, like, how do we create? Like, I understand what connection is, but how do we create it? I'm glad you asked that question. And I think there's lots of ways I want to talk about three. I took French in high school. I remember almost nothing. Bless Ms. Schnidman's heart. If he tried, I was not a good student. There's a French word for road, which is rue, R-U-E. And I'm going to use that today as an acronym, recognition, understanding, and expression. Now, there's going to be three questions. This is not a quiz. It's not graded. Be honest. As my dear friend, Reverend Kevin Ross says, don't leave me up here by myself. First question, has anybody here had the blissful experience where somebody has remembered your name and you had no expectation that they would? 
What's that little slice of heaven like? And doesn't it seem serendipitously to happen on a day that we, we may even feel like a little tinge of invisibility, a little question like, do I matter? Does anybody even know that I exist? My beloved mother had started to work many years ago for a mid-sized manufacturing company. And not long after she started working, she got married to my father. One day, one of the executives from the top floor came down, and mom worked in an administrative position, and he came by, and he introduced my mother not just by her name, but by her newly married name. More than 60 years later, that beautiful emotional residue, that experience, that memory, has my mother bring back those feelings today. That's the impact. Now, you're going to say, well, okay, I got it, but I suck at names. I'm like, no, you don't. You just haven't become committed. We remember passwords and hymns and sermons that Jeff and Phil teach. We never forget those. So we remember all this. It just becomes a commitment. And yet, I forget names all the time. And, and this the method to overcoming that, not just I can teach you how to do it, but even then, let's say you still forget. A dear friend of mine, Grant DePew, is a PE teacher at Rockland High School. And he talks about this beautiful black woman who's the custodian. Black women have this wonderful way to tell you what they're thinking and how they feel. And it's a beautiful thing. Like, let's have some authentic communication at this point, sister. <laughs> so Grant tells this story. He's walking down the hallway. Okay, it's a school hallway. It's not that wide. Here comes the custodian. Grant's moving. His brain just goes blank. He cannot remember her name. They know they know each other. He can't. And so what does Grant do? I look away. If you're like an arm signal, I'm going to pretend like you're invisible. So he walks by, and this beautiful woman says, hey, if you know me, hello me. <laughs> Amen, sister. And it is. It's such a beautiful thing. Like, okay, don't pretend like I don't exist. Just say hello. And then still, let's say you run into the situation, you forget somebody's name, here's what to say to them. Would you help me remember your name? Who's going to be upset by that? Now, you do it 15 times, okay, that's a whole other thing. <laughs> What's going to happen, this happens to me all the time, it has nothing about me, it's just this practice. You're going to remember a person's name, and they're on a day that they have no expectation, and more than anything else, that soul needs to be recognized. And that simple and pure act is going to bring them into the sit-by-the-fireplace with a warm cup of cocoa sense of belonging. Hope reigns supreme. Hope wraps that person up. Second question. Be honest. Who here has acted in a way that has made no sense to somebody else? <laughs> oh, pastor, thank you. Amen. Like people say, dude, sister, why would you say that? Why would you dress like that? Why would you eat that food? Why are you listening to that music? Why are you crying? Why are you angry? Why are you frustrated? Now, was the truth that there was some internal condition that was driving that behavior? An internal condition that nobody could see. Curiosity is the place to understanding nothing bad happens in the fertile ground of understanding, nothing at all. We come to realize the truth of the quote that the great Fred Rogers carried in his wallet for many, many years, and the quote was from a social worker that said, quite frankly, there's no one you can't learn to love once you know their story. 
Adia was a goose. At the time Adia came to the sanctuary, we had two geese, Ricky and Lucy, and we had a mallard duck named Dave who was convinced that he was a goose. <laughs> so Adia was a little unusual in like, that he liked to be held. And so I remember on the day that he came to the sanctuary, I held my new goose, put him right on the edge of this beautiful pond that we had in the back of the sanctuary, in the rear pasture. Adia's there, water up on his little webbed feet, and he has this intensity, and he's looking out, and he looks at Ricky and Lucy and Dave. And then he promptly jumps in this small bathtub-tized water trough that was on the edge of the pond that the other farm animals drank out of. I don't understand. Why would you do that? Maybe he's stressed. Pick him up, put him back on the edge, same. And then he looks at me. Jumps back in the water trough. Okay, now I'm navigating. I'm moving a little bit from that. It's kind of curious. I'm a little annoyed. A lot of manure, got to go pick it up. Don't want to get in trouble. We do this 10 times. Okay, now I've navigated to frustration. Now I'm angry. Like, I don't have time for this. Why on earth do I rescue animals? This is... <laughs> I'm getting frustrated. And then one of the horses comes over to drink out of the water trough. Thirsty horse, anxious goose. Not good. So my dad, my stepfather would say, bad scene. Thank goodness, Deanna, my savior, came and said, sweetheart, just, okay, please. Maybe there's something we don't know about Adia. I'm not quite sure what we're going to find out that's going to make a difference. And so you go knock yourself out, darling. I'm still going to be frustrated and angry and stupid. Dee comes back and says, well, guess what I found out? Adia was a suburban goose. Adia had lived his whole life in the backyard, small little confine. Adia had only ever swum in a kiddie pool. Adia had no idea what a pond was. Adia had no idea what life had created for him to experience. And I thought, oh. But here's one of the two great things about understanding. In that moment, a solution to the problem, once I understand, when I move away from misunderstanding to understanding, I'm like, dude, you can just buy a second water trough. It's not that complicated. But that answer, the solution to our problems oftentimes, in the midst of frustration, like the window that... Winston used to look through, in the moment of our frustration, we can't have access to that. But in the moment of understanding, we can. And so I sat down right next to the water drop. Ricky, Lucy, and Dave, Adia. Like, okay, you know what? It's going to be all right. Five minutes later, just five, Adia pops up out of the water trough, walks around my back, and sits down right next to me. And all I was waiting for him was to put his wing around me. <laughs> going to be okay, brother. We chill. Five minutes later, walks, he walk, gets up and walks right back to the edge again. Same intention. And then he swims into the pond. The other great thing about understanding is it creates this energetic vortex for us to move forward, to live and experience what life has created for us. Third question. Who has ever received... An expression, a timely, specific, authentic expression of the fact that somebody loves you. The fact that they care about you. The fact that, hey man, all you got to do is pick up the phone at 3 o'clock and I will be there in an instant. Are those not like remembering a name, like creating the space where somebody listens to us? Those are blissful. Those are hope-filled. 
And I think we unfortunately make the incorrect assumption that the people in our lives already know how we feel. And I'm saying, no, they don't. You could say, I love you to somebody. And it doesn't mean that they don't need to hear that I love you five minutes later. You can't hear that too much. So we need to leave here remembering names, creating the safe place for people to tell their story, and going out to express ourselves. Just make it timely, specific, and authentic. And you can do it in a text. You can do it in an email. You can do it on a phone call. You can do it in a person. But the, the greatest is a good old-fashioned handwritten note, and we know this to be true. We have been on the receiving end of these, these little gems. Natalie, I've never had children, but Natalie's like a daughter to me. Natalie knew, because I still have these days, knew that sometimes what hurts David the most can't be seen, but sometimes what helps David the most is easy to do. And on one of these occasions, Nat, as I like to call her, wrote me this note. David, I love you so much more than I could possibly ever show you. I truly can't imagine our family without you. I lately have felt sad because I don't know what I can do to help you. I don't understand depression. I don't feel like anyone really does. I have been researching to try and figure out what I can do to help. However, I couldn't really find anything, so I thought I would just reach out and remind you that even though your depression may cause you to feel that you are unworthy, that that is the farthest thing from the truth. And after reading this note hundreds of times, one, it never loses its impact. And two, I've come to realize it's the perfect note because it offers me support, not advice. It serves up empathy, not pity, and it oozes understanding and it lacks judgment. And Natalie reminds me my diagnosis is not my identity. And she reminds me that I don't have to do this thing in isolation. In her words, we are a team and we can do this. And I am ready, forgive me, Pastor, to kick some depression ass. And then with just seven words, just seven, equal in power to the four that the psychiatrist said to me in the hospital, just seven words, Natalie pulls me from that frigid place into the warm place in which she tells me, depression can't have you because you're ours. Here's the beautiful thing about connection, amongst the other thing. It comes with three R's. Reciprocity, release, and reinforcement. I know no more pure fact of pure experience of reciprocity than connection. As I create connection with another, I get the benefit. So for those of us who live with these conditions, it can be the most effective thing that we can do. And for those of us who want to be of service, it can be the most effective thing for us to do. But it also will release us from our fear that we're going to say or do the wrong thing because none of these things are ever wrong. And yet, no one expects us to remember their name or ask a question or, heaven forbid, in this day of technology, to go to the mailbox and find a note. We don't expect that. So these three things come with the power of an unexpected gesture. It's, hey, we're, we're all full in coach. Could you do us a favor and come up to first class? It's the parking spot in the front place when it's raining. It's the surprise birthday party. That's what connection does. Eight years ago... I forgot who I was. I was convinced of a lie. I was moving towards the end of my life because I thought other people would benefit. 
But I was saved, saved by connection. And in this place and, and many others, and if we've been to a wedding, we've heard this at least once from the great St. Paul in, in 2 Corinthians of faith, hope, and love. Love is the greatest. And I'd say, you know what? With all due respect, I disagree. Love is, love sometimes is hidden. Sometimes we've got to chase love. Love is a little fickle at times. Sometimes we wonder if we're worthy of love. Yes, it's important, but we kind of play this hide-and-go-seek sometimes. Faith, faith's like a rock star, a movie star, which is kind of intimidated because it's just this thing when we wonder, are we ever going to attain even a little bit of it? Hope, paraphrasing the great Charles Schultz, the creator of Peanuts, hope is like a warm puppy. Hope's always excited to see you. You can leave the room a moment in your life for just a little bit, and when you come back, the puppy is so excited to see you, just wants to jump in your lap and lick your face and be with you. Hope saves lives. This is Living Hope Church. The hope is on this wall right here. It's all about hope. Little did I know that the first responder was holding an invisible puppy with him. Not in the literal sense, but in the figurative sense. I didn't see this puppy, this little girl named Hope, but she was there. And as he moved from contact to connection, he put her down on the ground. And still facing away, I felt her on the back of my legs. And I turned around and picked up. Hope. And I pushed back from the rail and I turned to my left and I retraced my steps so I could be here with you today. We're in the midst of a difficult fight. The great Drew Ramsey, who's an amazing psychiatrist, in one short paragraph presences both the problem and the solution very simply. Someone you see today is thinking about killing themselves. Someone you see today is thinking about killing themselves. Your question, your smile, your love could save them. Trust me, they told me it did. We will win this fight. So help me, God, so help us, God, so help us. We will win this fight. And when we do, our story will be just like Odie's story. Odie was a 35-year-old chocolate-colored Tennessee walker. He was a parade pony. In those 4th of July parades, Odie would be that horse out in the front, and every, everybody and everything would be behind him. But when he came to the sanctuary, he was old, he was emaciated, he had been neglected, and he had this bad right-hand hip, which forced him to list to the right-hand side. But as soon as Odie came to the sanctuary, as soon as his four hooves hit sanctuary soil, he began the slow and steady transformation from hopeless to hope. Filled. Hope less to hope filled. Now, all horses want to have a job, and Odie was no exception. And Odie, while we didn't have a one ad, he went ahead and created his own position. He was the town crier. <laughs> Twice a day, morning and evening, Odie would be the first animal at the gate. And when the others saw the grand old man standing in this position, they knew it was time to form ranks behind him and follow their leader from the front pasture to the rear where they would luxuriate for the day, and then reverse course in late afternoon, early evening, Odie would lead them from the rear pasture back to the front. Well, one day, there's the old man. I'm late, that's not good. <laughs> Taking his left hoof and smacking the gate as hard as he can. I'm like, okay, come on, man, give me some slack. It's not like I'm not gonna show up. 
he forgives me. Open the gate, and Odie begins to lead. Now, Odie couldn't walk in a straight line, and so it was kind of like this. And it might even be like this. But I tell you what, the other animals did not pass him. They knew better. So Odie leads his posse into the front, the rear pasture. I shut the gate and go do what I do best, pick up manure. A couple hours later, I have that feeling we've all had, even though I can't see it, like something's not right. And I spin around, and Odie's down on his bad right-hand hip, right on the edge of the pond. And then to my added horror, I watch as he tries to regain his footing, and he falls into the pond. Dear God, I drop my muck bucket and my rake. I sprint bed to the back pasture, come right up to the edge. And then my mind relaxed a little bit because I thought, buoyant water, Odie will be able to regain his footing. But over the next three hours, I watch as 100 times. 100 times, my beautiful horse attempts to rise from despair, rise from agony, rise from hopelessness, and he can't. And I get a sense that he's losing hope. Now, Dee and I were all about an animal's experience at the sanctuary, not their tenure. And I realized, to my incredible sadness, on this day, I needed to help my horse move on to the greenest pasture of all. Went inside and had a lengthy conversation with our vet. And we came up with this unusual way to euthanize Odie in the pond and then pull his body out later. Well, by the time I got back, the other animals were lined up, but it wasn't Odie in the primary position. It was Prince, his best friend in all the world. This 30-something caramel color, white blaze, four feet dipped in paint, former racing horse. He and Odie were the BFFs. They were always together. And here Prince had assumed the position to honor his friend who remained in the pond, close to dying, his head above water. Here's I can so hard, I can't even see. And I open the gate and I watch as Prince now leads his posse towards the front. But after five steps, he stops. He lets the other animals go by. And then he turns around and goes right back up to where Odie was. Stands and stands straight and then connects profoundly, deeply, intimately with his best friend. And it was this incredibly sacred moment. And I walked up to be on the left-hand side of Prince, and there we were, three brothers locked in a triangular embrace, engaged in a sacred yet sad and solemn goodbye. And like my moment at the bridge, I lost pack of time and space. And then, Odie rose. My great horse rose from the water and he steadied himself. And with a slow, deliberate right-hand turn, step by step, he made his way. Out the shallow end of the pond, he took a sweeping left-hand turn and he came right up to me and put his head right in the center of my chest. And I lowered my forehead till it rested in his and I held his head in my hands and I felt the dampness in his coat. And I breathed in his scent. I felt his essence, his vibrance. His friend would not let him go. Connection pulled Odie forth. And at one point, Odie broke apart from me and went nose to nose in that way that horses do. And while I heard no word spoken, I know exactly what Prince was reminding his brother. Not today. Not on my watch. And then the two besties moved apart 
Odie leaning into Prince, Prince holding Odie up, and they made their way to the front pasture, and only then, only then, did the other animals begin to eat. Their leader had returned, and all was right with the world. Now, I must tell you that Odie didn't live for three more months after that amazing day. A beautiful horse didn't live for three more weeks. Odie didn't live for three more days. Odie lived for three more years. <laughs> that, that is the power of connection. Emily Dickinson says it best in her essay, hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without words and never stops at all. Probably the greatest preacher of all time, Dr. Martin Luther King says, the buoyancy of connection relieves the frigidity of despair. I would humbly add in your presence, connection creates hope and hope saves lives. But don't take my word for it. Ask Odie. Thank you. <laughs>